0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about why the concept of prison abolition isn't nearly as scary as it sounds, the answer to the question of what would replace prisons, and why you're wrong to even be asking that in the first place. Stick around at the end of the show for some very big news about the show itself and an explanation for why I urgently need your help. No kidding. Please have a listen to that. And now onto the show. Clips today come from Justice in America, Making Contact, Newsbeat, and This Is Hell.
1: Fifteen years ago, Angela Davis wrote a book called Are Prisons Obsolete? And in it, she essentially outlines a case for prison abolition. She says, look, even people who care about this issue, who want to see real change to our system, have trouble imagining a world without prisons in it. But why would we assume that prisons are inherently necessary?
2: So we know what you're thinking. Whenever you kind of say the words prison abolition to people, it can sound really extreme, right? People tend to think that, of course, we must have prisons. There are people out there who are dangerous and who have done some really, really bad things. And those people need to be locked up.
1: Perhaps you're even willing to concede that we could let 80 or 90 or 95% of people out of prison right now and address wrongdoings in either ways, and it wouldn't have any repercussions for public safety. But you also might believe that we still need to have that 5% of people locked away. Otherwise, we'd all be in danger.
2: Yeah, for most people, it's really difficult to imagine a world without prisons. And it's difficult for me to imagine a world without prisons.
1: Yeah, same for me. I think it takes a lot of proactive work and proactive imagining that that isn't intuitive to the sort of society we live in. Right, And it's just so foreign. And the instinct is to say, this is the only way we can keep people safe. Uh, We should reform them and improve them and all of that but we still have to rely on them. And to believe that prisons have no role in society is to be unrealistic or to believe in abstractions and not to be dealing Mm -hmm. in the real world as it is.
2: Yep, exactly. But Angela Davis makes a very good case that this is not true. So she says in her book, the most difficult and urgent challenge today is that of creatively exploring new terrains of justice where the prison no longer serves as our major anchor. And I just, I love that line because I think it really encompasses what we're trying to do here.
1: And Davis's argument echoes that of other abolitionists, including Mariam Kaba, who we'll talk to in a few minutes. And what prison abolitionists have long argued is that people in America have this real trouble imagining alternatives to the justice system precisely because ours is so monstrous. We think the current system with its exaggerated dependence on imprisonment as an unconditional standard, Davis says. And she says, Thus, we have a great difficulty envisioning any other way of dealing with more than 2 million people who are currently being held in our country's jails, prisons, youth facilities, and immigration detention centers.
2: And she acknowledges that there is not another humane system we could build to replace the current one, right? We could not house as many people as the current system does in any other humane system. But that's the point. We actually don't have to replace the prison system with just one thing. In fact, we don't have to replace it at all. Instead, abolitionists argue that getting rid of prisons, it would require sort of an array of alternative solutions whose utility depends on the person, the wrongdoing, and the circumstances.
1: And those alternatives could include rigorous therapy, targeted treatment, housing, restorative justice, education, employment. There are countless possibilities, all of which could, as Davis phrases it, crowd out the criminal justice system. And it's important to keep in mind that people who are prison abolitionists have a much larger intellectual and political framework for the way that they imagine prison abolition taking place. So it's not necessarily, and I can't speak on behalf of every prison abolitionist, obviously, but it's not necessarily letting all of the people out of prison right now in this moment and destroying the prisons with sledgehammers, although I imagine there are right. some people who do want that as well. What it's really about is saying, how can we create a set of social and systemic structures that make it so that we are diminishing the power of the prison, investing in communities where the realities of what put people on trajectory to prisons aren't the current social realities anymore. And so how can we sort of continuously diminish the need for and the power of this institution that we know continues to cause harm and harm and harm again?
2: And I think to that same point, this criminal justice reform community includes a lot of people who advocate for prison abolition. And in the meantime, what they're pushing for are they end to new prisons, right? They're pushing for decarceration. They're pushing for kind of proactive solutions that prevent people from going to prison in the first place. So it's not that it's abolition or nothing, right? It's that we think of abolition as the end goal, that we would really have a healthier society if we did not have to rely on prisons or choose to rely on prisons.
1: And I think a helpful framework for me to remember is always the way that we think of what constitutes as something that is radical or unrealistic. And and thinking about the sort of historical precedence of that, I always think for myself about slavery. And, And I think about how, you know, I think in our minds, we all think that all of us would be Frederick Douglass if we lived back in. Uh, 1860. Right. And what we have to remember is that there were very few people, like, like abolitionists were not at all reflective of the thinking of the sort of larger populace at that moment. Most people, if you went and said, I'm an abolitionist, they would look at you like you were crazy. Right. They would say, that's unrealistic. We, the United States had never actually existed as an institution without the institution of slavery alongside it. I mean, in fact, slavery, you know, the U.S. became the U.S. in 1776. Slavery's existed since 1619. So even more than 150 years prior to the United States becoming an official independent country, we had had slavery here. And so for so many people, the idea that slavery would be abolished, the thing that was the sort of economic bedrock of not only the South, but also the industries of the North, the idea that you would get rid of that seem ridiculous to people. Right. And so I think it's worth remembering that when somebody calls for the abolition of a system that our country has never existed without, it is a difficult thing to wrap your head around our country existing without that institution, but it is also important to remember that this is something that we have done before yeah. uh and and it is important to remember that now we look back at the people who chose to imagine a different world and who chose to imagine a different system in the most positive sort of way and and as uh, reflective of the way that we would imagine ourselves to be and so that 's just a helpful framework and thing that I think is uh, important to keep in mind as we decide what is ridiculous or what is not a ridiculous sort of policy mm-hmm. initiative
2: mhm yeah i think that's that 's really true, and I think part of this is imagining what a perfect world looks like. So often we get caught up in the, you know, the legislative victory or the small policy victory. And the way to see a path forward is to really see the end. And the end is a world without prisons, a world where people are safe without the American prison system. And, you know, for those that sort of think that this sounds absurd and impractical, I think it's worth keeping in mind that our current system is also impractical and also absurd. (laughs) You know, people come out of our current criminal justice system worse, not better. And this is a feature of the system. It's not a bug. In other words, this is not a system built to make anyone better or to really rehabilitate them or to address the harm that they've done or focus on repair and healing. And in that way, you know, this is sort of what I think abolition and restorative justice have in common. They're both focused on not just addressing the situation at hand, but really making people, healing them inside their trauma, their hurt, and ensuring that they can have consequences for their actions, but not in ways that destroy them.
1: Abolitionists argue that the system as it currently exists does more harm than good, and that you can't end violence, harm, and destruction through a system designed to subject millions of people to violence, harm, and destruction.
2: When you really think about it, you can see that it really doesn't make much sense to advocate for maintaining this system that has basically proven itself worthless. And actually, worthless doesn't even do justice to the problem here. This is a system that causes actual harm to millions of people every single day. So the idea of prison abolition and restorative justice, these are some of the bold alternatives that people are discussing. Mm -hmm.
3: We can never forget Mumia, we must never forget Mumia, but we must never forget any of the political prisoners. All of our PPs must be remembered and protected, but we must also remember that the structures that produce inequality, that criminalize our behaviors, that direct us toward prisons, make everybody sitting in these cages political prisoners. Every single one of these people is a political prisoner. And we can't forget any of them. But I think there's a bigger issue around disposability that we have to consider whenever we talk about those who are locked in these cages around the country. We live in a nation that renders the vulnerable disposable If you are mentally ill, you are disposable. If you are homeless, you are disposable. If you are drug addicted, you are disposable. And our ways of disposing of people is to erase them from the public view. One of the main places to do that is the prison. And so the prison becomes a way to hide our own social contradictions. Our failure to invest in the poor, our failure to do drug treatment, our failure to create structures where people can be properly housed. Our our failure to create institutions of learning where people can actually learn and have social mobility. All of those contradictions are erased by the prison. And so to a large extent, it's convenient to have these folk locked in these cages and for us to forget them. We have to hold on to this idea that abolition is possible. We can't yield that point. If you were to ask someone 50 years before the Emancipation Proclamation if abolishing the slave economy was possible, Say no. How can we get rid of slavery? Our economy is tied up in it. Our culture's tied up in it. Some folk need to be slaved. It's not just a political crisis and an ideological crisis, it's a crisis of imagination. We have to reimagine what's possible. Robin Kelly talks about the freedom dream. What is our freedom dream? Our freedom dream can't be warmer and fuzzier prisons. It it can't be right. We're not reformers. Our freedom dream can't be cops that dance with us on YouTube. That that can't be the idea. We have to get rid of the occupation. But we have to begin with a different understanding. We have to begin with the new. We have to decriminalize our imagination. We have literally scaled down our sense of what's possible, right? Howard Thurman talked about thinking beyond the moment, not being prisoner of the event. So I'm saying, let's imagine something bigger. What does that mean in a practical level? It means that first we have to get rid of this idea that justice means punishment. For, For a lot of us, even those of us in the movement, that is an ideological position that we can take in theory. But in practice, our idea is that that justice means punishment. And for too many of us, punishment means confinement. And so what happens is when someone steals our TV, when someone does harm to us, or even when these cops kill us, our first thing is lock them up. Now, I understand that's our only recourse in the context of this moment. And because they're locking us up, we have to have some kind of response. I'm 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 not minimizing that. But our ultimate goal can't be a world where cops get locked up for killing us. There's been a world where cops are demilitarized and disarmed so that they can't kill us so that prison doesn't become somehow our end goal. We have to reimagine this thing. So as, so as we move away, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna pass this thing, as we move away from this idea of who did it and how do we punish them to a question of who was harmed and how do we make them whole again. Right? As we move to that, that position, We're now in a better position to raise different questions because we have different possibilities in front of us. So when people ask me is abolition possible, yes, it's inevitable. It has to be, that has to be our freedom dream because there's people in the room who are not abolitionists. It's like, that all sounds good, but I got this cousin. And if you knew my cousin or this dude on my block, if you knew him, you would want prison too, right? Like the old Richard Pryor joke. There are people who do harm, who may not be ready to be in community right at this moment. And we have to find ways to fix the issue, to heal them, to make those who are harmed whole again. But there are ways to do all of those things without using the prison as the template for how to deal with it. So there might be somebody who has a mental health issue. And I would agree, if you shoot up a school, you have a mental health issue. If you're a child unless you have a mental health issue. There's a way to get secure confinement. There's a way to do treatment without putting someone in this thing that we call the prison we can we, have a, we can have a more robust imagination than that i think
0: Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, an online service that gives you unlimited access to your own fully licensed therapist via phone, chat, and video. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional in-person therapy, plus you don't have to go to an office and sit around in a waiting room, but you're getting the same professional help from fully accredited therapists. And there's a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counselor network, which may not be locally available in your area. You can schedule meetings that fit your schedule, you can message your therapist at any time, and you'll get a timely response. If you don't think the therapist they've matched you with is a good fit, you can switch to someone new at any time at no extra cost. Go to their website and check out what BetterHelp users are saying about the service. New testimonials are posted daily. And they're giving Best of the Left listeners 10% 10% off your first month of therapy when you go to betterhelp.com b-o-t-l that's better h-e-l-p dot com, slash, b-o-t-l for 10% off
2: For people who are learning what restorative justice is, yeah. we have laid out the basics mm-hmm. of the idea mm-hmm. of a different sort of system mm-hmm. that values coming to solutions mm-hmm. versus over punishment. Mm-hmm. But I would like to hear from you more about what it was about restorative justice then and what it continues to be about restorative justice that you find To be such a important intervention for people who could end up like the students that you had, or or, you know, are facing sort of the specter of the system kind of bearing down on them constantly.
4: Absolutely. Um, So, let me say about restorative justice that um, people who are practitioners of restorative justice see restorative justice as a philosophy, Mm -hmm. an ideology, a framework that is much broader than the criminal punishment system. Right, Mm -hmm. It is about values Mm -hmm. around how we treat each other in the world. And it's about an acknowledgement that because we're human beings, we hurt each other, Mm. we cause harm. Mm -hmm. And what Restorative Justice proposes is to ask a series of questions. Mostly the three that are kind of advanced by Howard Zare, who is the person who about 40 years ago popularized the concept of restorative justice in the United States, he talks about, since we want to address the violation in the relationships that were broken as a result of violence and harm, that you want to ask a question about who was hurt, Mm
2: -hmm.
4: that that is important to ask, that you want to ask then, what are the obligations, what are the needs that emerge from that hurt? Mm -hmm. And then you want to ask the question of whose job is it to actually address the harm. And so because of that, those questions of what happened, which in the current adversarial system are incidental, really,
2: Mm -hmm.
4: you know, it's who did this thing? What rules were broken? How Mm -hmm. are we going to actually punish the people who broke the rules? Mm -hmm. And then whose role is it to do that? It's the states. Mm -hmm. In restorative justice, it's what happened? talk about what happened, share what happened, discuss in a, you know, kind of relational sense what happened. And then it's, what are your needs? What do you need as a result of this? Because harms engender needs Mm -hmm. that must be met, Mm -hmm. right? So it asks you to really think that through. And then it says, you know, how do we repair this harm? Mm -hmm. And who needs to be at the table for that to happen? It invites community in. It invites other people who were also harmed because we recognize that the ripples of harm are beyond the two individuals that were involved. Mm -hmm. It's also the broader community and the society at large. So that's what restorative justice at its base is really the unit of concern is the broken relationship and the harm. Mm -hmm. Those are the focus of what we need to be addressing. And through that, that obviously involves the criminal punishment system. In many ways, RJ has become... Uh, co-opted by that system. Mm -hmm. So people who were initially proponents of restorative justice have moved their critique away from using RJ and talking about instead transformative justice. That's where you see these link, these breakdowns occurring Mm -hmm. because the system has taken on RJ now as quote unquote a model for restitution. So just to clarify, are you, So transformative
2: justice is now seen as
4: part of restorative justice Mm -mm. or the other way around? No, restorative Mm. justice and transformative justice, people say they're interchangeable sometimes. They are not. Right. Because transformative justice people say that you cannot actually use the current punishing institutions that exist. Mm -hmm. Whereas RJ now is being run in prisons. Mm -hmm. Is being won in schools. Mm -hmm. Institutions that are themselves violently punishing institutions Mm -hmm. are now taking that on and running that there. Mm -hmm. And what people who are advocates of transformative justice say is, RJ, because of its focus on the individual, the intervention is on individuals, not the system. Mm
2: -hmm. And what
4: transformative justice, you know, people, advocates, and people who have kind of begun to be practitioners in that have said is, we have to also transform the conditions that make this thing possible. And restoring is restoring to what? For many people, the situation that occurred prior to the harm had lots of harm in it. Right. So what are we restoring people to? We have to transform those conditions. And in order to do that, we have to organize. To shift the structures and the systems, and that will also be very important beyond the interpersonal relationships that need to be mended. Right.
1: You've come to mention that the framework of transformative justice and and restorative justice before it becomes sort of co-opted by these systems of Mm -hmm. violence is not, uh, some people use them as an alternative to
4: Mm
3: -hmm.
1: punitive measures, an alternative to incarceration, but you reject that that premise.
4: I reject the premise of restorative and transformative justice being alternatives to incarceration. Mm. I don't reject the premise that we should prefigure the world in which we want to live and therefore use multiple different kinds of ways to figure out how to address harm. So here's what I mean. Mm. Because people are now saying things like the current criminal punishment system is broken which it is not Mm right right it is actually operating exactly as designed and that's what abolition has helped us to understand is that Mm -hmm. the system is actually relentlessly successful at targeting the people it wants and at basically getting the outcomes it wants from that so if you understand that to be the case then you are in a position of very much understanding that every time you we use the term alternative to incarceration what comes to your mind? Incarceration, we're centering the, the system. That's right. Right. You're centering the punishing system. Mm-hmm. You set, When I say alternative to prison, all you hear is prison. Mm-hmm. And what that does is that it conditions your imagination to think about the prison as the center. Mm-hmm. And what we're saying as transformative and restorative justice practitioners is that the prison is actually an outcome of a broader system of violence and harm that has its roots in slavery and before Mm -hmm. colonization. Mm -hmm. And here we are in this position where all you then think about is replacing what we currently use prisons for, for the new thing. Mm -hmm. So what I mean by that is, when you think of an alternative in this moment, and you're thinking about prison, you just think of transposing all of the things we currently consider crimes into that new world. Mm. And it has to fit that sphere. It has to fit that sphere. Mm -hmm. But here's what I I would like to say. Lots of crimes are not harmful to anybody.
1: It's not actually reimagining the the idea of what constitutes as criminal behavior in the first place. Exactly. And
4: it's also that, we're in this position where not all crimes are harms and not all harms are actually crimes. crimes. Mm. Right. And what we are concerned with as people who practice restorative and transformative justice is harm across the board, no matter what. So I always tell people when they say like, Oh, we're having an alternative to incarceration or alternative prison. I'm like, okay, what are you decriminalizing first? Mm. Uh Do we have a whole list of things? Like, so your possession of drugs is a criminal offense right now. I don't want an alternative to that. I want you to leave people the hell alone. Right. There shouldn't right. be
1: a, a, not a, a transformative justice right. intervention so, okay. for. Drug right. An, possession. Right.
4: right. Exactly. That is not what we're right. in for. That is not even close to what oh. we care about. You got to decriminalize a whole lot of stuff. And then you got to figure out what are the actual harms that are really harming people? And then you got to address and transform those. So that's why I don't like this concept of we are having this as an alternative to, no, it's its own vision. Mm -hmm. It's its own ideology. It has its own set of premises that are about how we relate to each other as human beings. So let's
1: move into that. Let's think, uh, like, how do you conceive of abolition? And like, what is your framework for what that means, what that looks like? Because I think that that's a word that, means a lot of different things to a lot of different people it does. that has a lot of uh, historical significance, it does. Uh, but at the same time, that's also uh, misrepresented mm-hmm. very purposefully yeah. in a lot of contemporary political discourse. So can you talk a little bit about how you think of what abolition is and how it fits into your sort of larger process of work.
4: Yeah, for me, prison industrial complex abolition, prison industrial complex meaning um, all of the interests that come together to imprison, uh, surveil, and police people mm-hmm. Um the PIC abolition, for me, I came to it actually through the work of Critical Resistance, mm-hmm. uh, which is a formation and organization that started in, um, the Bay Area in, uh, 1998. So it's actually 20 years ago where, uh, CR is celebrating 20 years this year of existence. Um, and what Critical Resistance started talking about in 98 and had built on years of other people's thinking about this, you know, Nels Christie, um, you know, kind of a lot of the Scandinavian philosophers mm-hmm. who had been talking about it in the 1970s. There's a very important kind of abolitionist uh, statement and document that came out called um, Instead of Prisons that was put together in 1976 by Faye Knopp. And a bunch of other people who called themselves abolitionists, prison abolitionists at the time, because in the 70s, people were talking about the end of prison. Uh, people were talking about prisons being over because we had numbers of people that had been in decline at that point. Um, and so there were already people who were talking about, so what's the system that we're going to build that will be the prison instead of prisons at that period of time? But anyway, so what uh, what you should think about when you're thinking about PIC abolition is what Ruthie Gilmore uh, talks about, Ruth Wilson Gilmore talks about, which is that abolition is really more about presence than it is about absence. Mm. Abolition is a positive project that is focused on not just the dismantling of the current punishing systems, but also the building of something else. Mm-hmm. That abolition that people who are uh, usually kind of uh, thinking about pAC abolition, something else that Ruthie says all the time is that abolition is a, just about changing one thing, everything mm-hmm. so it mm-hmm. is like a philosophy, an ideology, a framework, and a practical organizing strategy that asks you to think about all the different ways in which the systems that we currently have shorten people's lives mm-hmm. so it is it is about kind of reversing premature death, ultimately. That what we have currently in our current criminal punishment system is to accelerate people's death in multiple kinds of ways, Mm -hmm. and that that system is surrounded by many other systems that co-constitute that premature death. Mm -hmm. So you have to think of capitalism. You have to think about Mm -hmm. eradicating that. You have to think about the environmental destruction that we are under, the climate, you know, destruction that we're currently dealing with and facing with. If you're doing work on climate change, you're doing abolitionist work. Mm-hmm. If you are working to make sure people have a living wage, you're doing abolitionist work and organizing. If you are working right now to ensure that people's education is actually a good one, that mm-hmm. people have access to free uh, quality education, you are doing abolitionist organizing. Mm-hmm. It's a systemic and structural view of how the world operates. It tells a story about how we came to be and what we need to do in order to be able to actually shift those conditions. So Mm -hmm. the other thing about abolition that I think people often ask me about is they say, I can't wrap my brain around the ends of prisons. I don't, I don't understand that. And I'm always like, I, ma- I make that sound because that's how <laughs> it's usually white people and white men. You do this to me on a regular basis. Um, so that was why my white man voice, but, um, that's very badly done. Sorry. Um, but I, but it's like, I don't understand what, and I'm always like, well, then you can't wrap your brain around a world without exploitation and dehumanization. Mm-hmm. How sad is that? How sad is that? If you can't imagine a world without these things, then you cannot imagine a world devoid of that. Mm-hmm. And I and I refuse to succumb to that. Mm-hmm. I, I can't imagine a world without dehumanization and exploitation. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, that project makes sense to me. And the last thing I'll say is that um, the other part of abolition that makes to me a lot of sense is people also say, like, how does that work? How could you do that? And I'm always like, you practice abolition daily. Right. It's a daily thing. And there are communities right now That are living in abolitionist present. Mm -hmm. They really are. There are places where you can travel. I and I came. I lived for over twenty years in Chicago, and you can go to Naperville, and you could go around, and those kids have the schools they need, Mm -hmm. with no metal detectors. Mm -hmm. All of them are going to college. Mm -hmm. They live in homes that are beautiful and have what they need. Mm -hmm. They have all the food they need to eat. They never see the cops except when the cops are called. Mm -hmm. They, like, it's the, they are living an abolitionist present. And the question I always have for people is why they can't see that for my nephew. Mm-hmm. why that world is not possible for him mm-hmm. when it is possible for many of the children of the people who tell me they can't imagine living in an abolitionist future. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you're living in abolitionist present. Mm-hmm. So I don't understand what we're really talking about here. Mm-hmm. You're saying that there are some people who are never going to be allowed to have what your kids have. Mm-hmm. That to me is unacceptable. Mm-hmm. I refuse to acknowledge that as being something that's valid. So to me, abolition is always present. We're doing it in so many different ways. And the way we're trying to get there is often through these non-reformist reforms that are the ways that give us a track to move towards that horizon. Um, And so for me, my organizing is very much determined Mm -hmm. by Uh, abolition as as the thing that I want to hold true to the questions I ask of any sort of policy reform or whatever are guided by that right are guided by an abolitionist
5: framework
0: Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed, which can help take the coloring of your hair to the next level. For decades, women have only had two options for coloring their hair, outdated at-home color or spending the time and money on a salon, but now you can get gorgeous professional hair color delivered to your door for less than $25. Self-image is an important thing, so it's no surprise that many Madison Reed clients have commented how their new hair color has improved their lives. Madison Reed delivers gray-covering, game-changing color you can do at home and look as if you came from the salon. Women love the results. Gorgeous, shiny, multi-dimensional, healthy-looking hair. What makes Madison Reed color unique is that it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm to create over 45 gorgeous, multi-tonal shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com, and best-of-the-left listeners get 10% off plus free free shipping on their first color kit with the code LEFT. That's code LEFT at madison-reed.com.
4: Prisons in the United States really kick off with the Walnut Street Jail in Philadelphia in 1790. It's the first kind of penal institution that people might recognize from today, though that initial jail was one where people spent the day there and then they got to go home at night. You know, it's the launch of what we begin to understand as something called the penitentiary. If you hear the term penitentiary, you hear the word penance within that. And so you can see the kind of religious roots of that institution. People thought that if you committed a harm, you needed time away from your community to basically be penitent for what you had done, but it wasn't to remove you completely from that community. It's not until 1820 with the establishment of the Auburn prison in New York that we begin to see the prison in its modern incarnation that people would recognize today. Auburn has the striped uniforms, which people associate with prisons. Auburn initiates solitary confinement and individual cells. Auburn institutes the policy of people staying in prison all day for years and years. Early prisons had men and women mixed together. Children were incarcerated in jails and prisons early on. Over time, reforms came into being to begin to separate out the genders and then also begin to separate people out according to age. That was all seen as a reform that would be a positive reform. The jail and the prison itself was seen as a reform, as a reform to corporal punishment and capital punishment. So instead of killing you for what was going on, we would incarcerate you. And that was seen as more humane. Pretty early on, though, in the early 19th century uh, to the mid-19th century, people, reformers, critics, others began to already understand that the prison itself was a form of torture, that that reform had failed, and that people needed to go do more reforms in order to fix the failed reform. So the history of prisons in the United States, at least, has been a history of reform after reform after reform, and yet. The very totalitarian total control of the prison, the system itself of domination, has always remained the same. Prisons have never been places of, quote, rehabilitation. They've been places of punishment. They always have been. The rhetoric around prisons has had a lot of rehabilitation language, but the reality is that it's always been a, an institute of control and punishment, social control and punishment. Really in the late 60s, early 70s, um, you have people who are early abolitionists, early PIC abolitionists, who are talking about kind of the end of prisons. People really believed that that was possible. We had less than 300,000 people in 1970 in both our jails and prisons. While if you look at a point in time and you see a whole bunch of folks, you know they say the number 700,000 people in our jails, that's not actually true, that's on any given day. But throughout the course of the year, we have something like 12 million people who cycle through our jails. These are all people who have contact with the system. If you look at the number of people on parole and probation, if you look at everybody who's under E incarceration, that's millions and millions of people a year are caught up within the system you know we have over 70 million people in the united states with criminal records you know that's that's astronomical i don't think people understand the scale of criminalization and its impact on people it is really difficult to not know somebody who's come into contact with the prison industrial complex um, which is not just about prisons, right? It's about policing and it's about surveillance and it's about all the other things that are part of the ways in which the state controls us and finds its way to dominate us and finds its way to disenfranchise us.
6: This is convict music with no ACON Contracts, breaking nuclear homes A-bomb contact, punishment For crimes, I can't hate on all, all that But our so-called criminals, they are All black and brown, arrested for Cracking vials, packs allowed And dragged forth and back to trial And so we dealing with the tribulations Swallow your pride inside for the cavity Searches during the visitations, anything's a Crime when they want you in chains, bling Bling, that's the sound of closing of the cage I read 1984 and 2003, the same year I had my first run in with the D's. They say they take me in for truancy, but I was all sick. They were the ones that were out of class truthfully. The school of hard knocks, you know the deal. Your life is just collateral when it comes to getting them quotas filled.
7: The idea of prison abolition is that prisons cannot be reformed. They need to be eliminated. Like you cannot reform a system that is working the way it has been intended to. So if you think of Ideas around, say, police violence or other forms of state violence, you can either think, oh, the system is broken, and if we just do these things to change it and we can tinker with it, we can make it better and it won't do these things like kill Black people or incarcerate 2.3 million people, many of whom are incarcerated because they did not have other opportunities in life. Abolition looks at the larger picture, which says this is a system that works as it is intended to. So if we think about mass incarceration, not simply as the war on drugs, but looking at it as a response to the various civil rights and liberation struggles that were happening in the United States in the 1960s and early 1970s, and thinking about it as a response to marginalized communities and to people who might become organizers and agitators before they had a chance to organize. Nixon said that we cannot have a society in which some people choose to obey the law and some people do not, like everybody has to obey the law, and realize that he was talking about the civil rights movement and civil disobedience. This
3: is a nation of laws, and as Abraham Lincoln has said, no one is above the law, no one is below the law. And we're going to enforce the law, and Americans should remember that
7: if we're going to have more. He was not talking about street crime, but politicians conflated street crime with the images people were seeing on their TVs every night of black people doing things like sit ins and marching for their rights and, you know, being attacked by police.
3: When we talk about marching by the thousands, we always prepare ourselves for the follow up. If it is necessary,
1: we are willing and must be willing to go to jail by the thousands in Alabama.
7: And this got conflated by politicians as like, look, crime is up. People are not obeying the law. We need to do something about that.
8: a moment in our nation's history where we were still very much captured by this race to incarcerate. And there were relatively few people who were serious about challenging the drug war, challenging the Get Tough movement, who were viewing the system of mass incarceration, the prison industrial complex, as a civil rights issue or even, you know, as a racial justice issue at that time. But legal services for prisoners with children, all of us are none, Black Lives Matter, the extraordinary amount of organizing and movement building that has happened over the last 10 years has created a radically different landscape today. I remember 20 years ago when we were dealing with a wave of legislation in California and beyond. There was Prop 21, there were the three strikes initiatives. It was just an onslaught of initiatives and legislations designed to lock people up for longer and longer periods of time. And civil rights organizations, for the most part, were quiet, were mum. Um, Well, today we're in a different place and we have a wave of legislation across the United States that is scaling back much of, you know, what had been done during those years. But I I am concerned um, that even in this moment, with all of the victories, uh, with ban the box, with drug policy reform, um, with all of these victories, that we are at a moment where we can see right before our eyes how the systems are adapting and morphing and attempting to devise new forms of racial and social control um, that we can see, we will be dealing with you know, for decades to come. I remember when the book first came out, people would ask me, uh, well, what do you think the next system of racial and social control would be? And I said, well, we know there's going to be mass deportation. Mass deportation had already begun by that time. But I struggled and kind of wondered, well, what, what would it be? You know, 40 years ago, nobody dreamed of the system of mass incarceration. Is it possible to predict what the next system of racial or social control is? But I think we can predict today because already we see digital prisons being born all over this country. We have electronic monitors, we have surveillance systems, we have a new system of control that we are seeing in our communities that are being kind of sold as an alternative to prisons, but are functioning as new high-tech means of keeping our communities and our families under perpetual surveillance even if it's open air prisons and decisions are being made about who is going to be locked up and who is going to be you know slapped with a monitor based on algorithms and based on computer generated predictions and we are entering a world i think where the brick and mortar prisons may be scaled back But we will have open-air prisons, to borrow the language of Jazz Hayden, that will control entire communities. So rather than being locked up for 10 years, you might have an electronic monitor, you know, for 25. So I think it's critically important for us to be aware not only of what we have accomplished, but the challenges that, you know, we can see on the horizon for um, decades to come.
9: What happened between the 1970s and today? There are three primary stories that scholars and activists lean on to explain how we come by what the general public knows as mass incarceration and what abolitionists know as the prison industrial complex. And those stories are at root stories about race, stories about economics, and stories about politics. The racial story, which is the most familiar one and and which really is a powerful movement narrative, looks at the rise of mass incarceration or uh, the prison industrial complex in the long history of racial caste in America moving from slavery to Jim Crow and then the loosening of the civil rights movement and then looks at mass incarceration as a backlash against that. The economic argument that tells a number of of different stories about post-industrialization, about the ratcheting down of state capacities in certain way around military spending and the emergence of surplus populations that could be managed through incarceration both by providing jobs for certain sectors of the population disproportionately white and rural and dealing with the surplus urban population disproportionately black and brown for whom there was no longer gainful employment in the new economy. The third story that people tell uh, is around politics and the emergence of law and order politics on the right under Goldwater, and Nixon's Southern strategy. Liberals playing a certain kind of useful idiot role, concerned primarily about racial disparities that lead to a ratchet effect in which racial disparities are eliminated by tougher punishment for everyone. And then prison building becomes a boom in the 1980s, and it's a wedge issue that the Republicans use against the Democrats. The increase in citizen involvement of the crime problem And the tough new state statutes directed at repeat offenders make it clear that the
7: American people are reasserting certain enduring truths, the belief that right and wrong do matter, that individuals are responsible for their actions, that evil is frequently a conscious choice, and that retribution
9: must be swift and sure for those who decide to make a career of preying on the innocent. Clintonism took away that wedge issue by making mass incarceration uh, consensus politics.
7: Today the bickering stops. The
0: era of excuses is over. The law-abiding citizens of our country have made their voices heard. Never again should Washington put politics and party above law and order.
9: And so between 1992 and 2008 and the financial crash, there was simply no politician on the national stage who was going to waste any social capital on the rights of incarcerated people or of criminal defendants. You
5: know what, right now, breaking news here, stocks all around the world are
7: tanking because of the crisis. This is all because we're waking up to two fewer investment banks on Wall Street, Lehman Brothers has filed for bankruptcy, and Bank of America is taking over Merrill Lynch in a $50 billion deal.
9: So between those three factors, you get to where we are today. Throughout the period of mass incarceration, there have been vocal advocates calling for prison abolition, and those forces have been drowned out. But beginning at the end of the 1990s, those forces began organizing concertedly, critical resistance in California being the most obvious example. And then in the present decade, we see, for a variety of reasons, the idea of abolishing prisons move in from the margins and into the mainstream conversation.
6: This is convict music with no styles P-verse. Slave labor in the prisons, major Nikes heard. So if you marching for the homies, wear charcoal pumas. That's the closest that you'll get to Black Panther and maneuvers. Nixon criminalized us fighting for our lives like hose down. These Negroes marching right outside. Reagan carried the torch with the war on throw. Locking everyone inside. The hood cried no moss, but no relief. Stiff mattress, no sheets. Two million folks who got snatched up off the streets. Many can't make bail and die. It's overcrowded. You crazy if you think there's only one Khalif Browder and Clinton's crime bill had Giuliani Rollins. Cups on wrists was his fame in the nineties. Now they legalizing everything that got you all right is why you try your best to not be food for the lifeless.
4: I'm talking about PIC abolition. That's the history that that comes from the work that's been done. That laid the groundwork for me to even understand abolition as a concept comes from people like Angela Davis. Prison abolitionists, as opposed to prison reformers, uh, make the point uh,
1: that oftentimes reforms uh, uh, create
7: situations where um, mass incarceration becomes even more entrenched.
4: Comes from people like Faye not, comes from people like Ruthie Gilmore, Prisons have become almost um, quasi-religious in so far as people imagine that they are necessary at the scale and scope to which they've developed over the last 30 years. I see abolition as both a political vision with a goal, but also as a practical organizing strategy. Critical resistance says that abolition really isn't just about getting rid of buildings full of cages, but we also have to focus on undoing the actual society we live in because the PIC feeds on and maintains oppression and inequalities through punishment and violence. So it's not isolated. It's part of the larger systems in which we live. Ruthie Gilmore talks about abolition as about presence and not mainly about absence or about dismantling. It's also about building something, an alternate vision of a world in which we want to live. Both things are important in order for us to be able to do that. And I know that's not what people think of. When you hear the term abolish, I think people think of something really drastic that happens immediately. And the history of even, you know, of of the abolition of chattel slavery teaches us that things don't happen abruptly that they are happen over time with forethought and strategy and persistence and connecting those individual actions we take to a broader movement. So all those things are true and we have to always think about the fact that abolition is really a creative endeavor. It's about thinking of things anew and it's a very hopeful and a very positive project. I think a lot of people want to think of it as mainly a project of destruction, and that is part of it. You have to destroy things in order for new things to emerge in their place, but it's also a project of positive, hopeful creation.
9: We currently use cages to keep human beings in there for a load of reasons that have to do with the management of poor populations, of unruly populations, of mentally ill populations. That seems to be the system that we have. What we replace the system with and, and how we get there, this is the question that I think abolitionists are encouraging all of us to ask. There's no single one fix, right? The reasons that we put so many people in cages has everything to do with uh, how we structure our economy and how we structure our education and how we manage racial difference in our country and, and white supremacy. And to build a world without prisons is going to require systemic interventions that deal with a host of other malignant social characteristics.
4: That question is not a question for one person. That question is a question for our society as a whole. If you feel like the current way we are addressing harms is good and works for you, then I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the people who actually, when harm happens to them, prefer nothing to what we currently have. And that is the majority of the population. Because frankly, when harms occur to us, whether it's a rape or something else, often we don't actually turn to the systems that currently exist to get what we call justice. Those systems are already seen by many millions of people in this country and beyond as unjust, as not going to get you what you need. So people just choose to use alternative means already to address harms. And those means include anything from vigilante violence themselves to nothing.
6: This is convict music with no tea, pain slow jams. Abolition movements. Get with the program. We want them all shut. Boy, the system didn't jail with us since the war. Nut prison lived in Philadelphia. No, not reform. Let it all burn. Words to the joint in New York called the Burn. That's where it all started but it no longer functions. Prisons cannot be the anchor of justice. The words of Angela Davis. Mind opening. Why hold them in when we can find different skills that we can coach them in? Giving hope to men and women with unfair circumstances. Dances. Let's turn our backs to the anti-social normative. It's pejorative. This song isn't just performative. I know we ought to live better. Read Golden Gulag. Ruthie Gilmore authored it. The prison industrial complex is not the highest order, kid.
10: Colleen, you and Ben write that many in the pre-existing decarceration movement applaud this shift, welcoming the involvement of policymakers and rightfully feeling validated on their work by these small steps toward justice. Others are more hesitant, raising critiques of the elites and warning against collaboration with forces that strengthen and reinforce carceral logics. How might this desire for change in mass incarceration end up leading to reinforcing carceral logics? Because at times I have heard critics Unknowingly, without realizing, unwittingly, uh, reinforcing logics that they end up opposing. So, how might this desire for change in mass incarceration lead to reinforcing carceral logics? And do you think that those that's intended, or it's an unintended consequence?
5: Sure. Um, Well, to first answer that very last question, uh, we argue that white supremacy is intentional. It's an intentional um, logic that is built into our democratic order and into the prison system itself and so uh, we have to you know totally undo that um, in order to reach any sort of change and we have to intentionally enact that social change um, to counteract this rationalized white supremacy um, however in order to um, you know in order to affect change I think that we need to start to understand how there's been this uh, long, you know, decades, centuries, uh, basically effort to disinvest in certain communities at the same time that we have been um, entrenching ourselves into mass imprisonment. And so while the state is sort of, you know, moving towards decarceration and criminal justice reform, we have to think about how we can counteract that by um, you know, putting more fuel, energy, um, and even state dollars—as provocative as that might be—into um, the kinds of you know infrastructures that we've been depriving marginalized communities um, for so long.
10: Ben, you write the system of carcerality in the United States is one that extends beyond the prison walls. We borrow a definition of the carceral from philosopher Michel Foucault that refers to an institution, a system, or a body of knowledge that renders people as objects and exercises control over and through them. So, Ben, how does our carceral society affect even those who have never been to prison, who have never known anyone who has gone to prison? How does our carceral society affect even the unincarcerated, and the never incarcerated or having any contact with incarceration?
11: Yeah, I mean, I think it it looms as a threat over all of us. It is a way to put coercive state violence behind a particular set of social norms, um, which include white supremacy, include patriarchy, include um, classism, and and just like this whole variety of um, different Things that we consider normal or acceptable behavior, and um, and so people who want to act outside of that, uh, you know, are know that they are not only defying you know social normal you know social pressures, but um, they're also risking crossing the um, the the line of the state. There are there are so many laws in place um, that are that are largely not enforced and that are only enforced against marginalized populations um, and people who are adopting um, antisocial behavior. And so when you step outside of um, the normative structures, whether that's in your gender presentation, your um, cultural symbols and signifiers and things like that, you are putting yourself at risk of falling into the targets of the system that is set up with so many laws and so many regulations that it could target anyone, um, and and so the and the reason this comes back to white supremacy is that it so disproportionately targets you know certain um, black and brown communities, particularly in cities.
10: Colleen, uh, you write: although the much lauded Civil Rights Act inspired hope among many that the country might move toward racial equality. It is now clear that the legislation forced white supremacy to shift and to become more subtle in effect. Do you think that was intentional within the Civil Rights Act? Did the concession, was the bipartisanism that got the legislation passed, was the concession that was made to make it vulnerable to white supremacy?
5: I, I think in some, part, some parts, yes, um, and in other ways, no. Um, You know, I think that the gaze of whiteness um, was directing the Civil Rights Act the entire time. Of course, we had amazing Black resistance. We had amazing um, resistance, you know, that we witnessed among many different kinds of communities supporting uh, these reform efforts. However, they were focused on um, tweaking the system rather than entirely uprooting and, and, you know, changing the system drastically. And so because this sort of you know white elitist power structure was influencing this legislation um, the entire time, you know, writing it, uh, enacting it, voting on it, etc., um, we see that a lot of the gestures were symbolic. Um and and some of them actually obviously changed policy. They ended segregation laws. You know, they there were substantial changes made, and I, I want to applaud those and not minimize those. Uh, however, they there's sort of a glass ceiling, so to speak, on all of those efforts, um, not allowing full integration and appeasing um, much of the anger of the black community in the moment rather than looking at an extremely long-term solution. So as these civil rights um, policies were enacted, um, people were appeased for the most part. Uh, some weren't, of course. Then we see that the power structure forms, or um, I'm sorry, it morphs, right? And it reshapes and then again accommodates uh, capitalist interests, white supremacist interests, um, in a more neoliberal sort of form.
10: Uh, Colleen, let me follow up on that, because uh, a couple weeks ago we were talking to another contributor to your book, uh, uh K. Reddy, and she was talking about how only tweaking a system, only reforming the system, reinforces the system that you're against from the beginning, the that institution itself. So does re, does prison reform lead to reinforcing a prison system that you oppose?
5: It absolutely does, yes. Now, we argue in our paper that there is room for um, abolitionists to endorse certain reforms. So, though that seems like a contradiction, um, I'll first explain that the prison system is designed to disrupt communities. It is designed to enact racialized social control and to keep uh, poor uh, communities of color at the bottom you know end of the social strata, and so because of that we know that we don't need the system we shouldn't have the system and to accommodate this and to tweak it is only going to mean um you know a longer road of uh, of marginalization and of disenfranchisement but until we reach this sort of you know destruction, abolition, um that we are seeking, we do unfortunately have to embrace some reforms. But again, we need to understand the longer vision and to not have um, a case of social amnesia, which I think a lot of our elite politicians do have. So we need to understand that though we might back a certain reform that you know helps alleviate harm is a form of harm reduction. Uh, We need to know that, you know, 10 years from now, we don't want the system to exist. So um, it's sort of, you know, understanding that the contradiction there actually can um, exist while we make meaningful change.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with Justice in America in two clips, introducing and then talking with Mariam Kaba about her understanding of prison abolition. Making Contact first shared a clip of Mark Lamont Hill and then later Michelle Alexander, author of The New Jim Crow, giving their thoughts about the future of crime and punishment. Newsbeat, in two parts, put the story of mass incarceration and prison abolition to music. And finally, we just heard This Is Hell speaking with Colleen Hackett and Ben Turk about the tension between carceral abolition and simple reforms. Members will hear a bit more on this topic Miriam Kaba had so much good stuff to say that honestly, it broke my heart to have to cut so much of it from the regular show. So members will be hearing a lot more from her, as well as some talk on the related topic of abolishing the police. To hear that and all of our bonus content, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at Patreon.com/slash Best of Left. Today, as promised, I have big news to share about the show. And unfortunately, it is not good news. The world of the business of podcasting and the politics of the internet and capitalism and online privacy and all of those things have finally collided head on, at least in my world. A little bit of context, the way the show makes money is number one, patrons a little bit more than one third of our income comes directly from patrons who pledge monthly, two bucks, six bucks, you know, more. Uh, you know, collectively, averaging about six bucks a month, uh, we have 545 people on Patreon as of this moment. Uh, so that's that's a little bit more than a third. Then a little bit less than a third is the affiliate link that we have uh, if you use our link to shop in the big box store in the sky that's not quite but almost a third of the income you know which is amazing and and then the the other portion which is about a third is from direct advertisers and the way advertisements get in the show is you know I I don't go out and like contact companies and ask if they want to advertise on the show, There, there's a broker company who makes that deal for me. So they have relationships with all the advertising companies, and then they bring those to me and say, okay, this company or that wants to advertise for this many episodes and for this much money, and here's what they would want you to say, et cetera. And we work out the details, and uh, the deal gets done, and everyone makes money. The broker company takes a cut. And so that's been working perfectly well for a few years. It is it's pretty low tech. Uh, you know, pretty much the, the most I do is have a like a survey. You know, you've, I'm sure you've heard either me or other podcasts uh, ask you to take a listener advertising survey to learn a little bit more about the audience. But the entire podcasting industry Is moving in a very uncomfortable direction. Not, I I say, entire. Not, not entirely. But much of the podcasting industry is moving in a very uncomfortable direction, where I'm not going to be happy to go along with them. Uh, We've talked plenty on the show, you know, fairly recently um, and and in an ongoing way about major companies, you know, the Facebooks and the Googles and uh, companies like that that track you online, and in a way subvert your privacy for their own profits. They learn more and more and more about you in order to advertise in an ever more targeted way in the hopes of potentially squeezing more money out of you, potentially even uh, changing your behavior to fit the needs of the advertiser even more. To make more money that way. And then the flip side is that advertisers actually save money by targeting more specifically because they can not waste money advertising to people who it turns out won't buy whatever their product is. So it's definitely all about making money for advertisers, but I'm not an advertiser, I'm a publisher. And it doesn't necessarily work out all that well for publishers to do that kind of highly targeted advertising. And so that's why, among all the ethical qualms and and questions I would have uh, about this sort of idea, why I found it to not at all be a positive thing when my advertising broker company emailed me with the great news, they phrased it, that they were going to move in this direction that the whole Internet has, has been moving in, they aren't satisfied with listener surveys and things like that. They want me to integrate with them ever more closely and start tracking and digitally spying on my listeners so that they can get ever more detailed psychographic information about you so that they can target their advertising to you in an ever more efficient way. Well, you won't be surprised to hear that I'm not very excited about that plan, ethical qualms. There are actually some legal qualms, and uh, it goes against everything we try to preach on on this show. So uh, I've already talked this over with members at the end of last week. So I, I don't think everyone's had a chance to listen to it yet, but I got one voicemail so far from members chiming in on this. So let's hear that, and then I'll come back and talk more.
11: Hi, Jay, David from Gaithersburg. Just listened to 183 bonus episode and the last few things you were talking about with the advertising situation. Speaking only for myself, don't worry about, at least for me, about taking the new plan. I'm more concerned with maintaining the content being delivered from you to me than I am about being tracked and traced by the great big internet machine. It's part of life. Anyway, thank you for your show.
0: All right. Thanks for that, uh, David. Uh, I really appreciate the input. We're going to call that plan B. I'm definitely aware that just going along with this plan is theoretically an option. But as I said, let's keep that as plan B for the time being, because it's not just the spying that I'm not down with. It's also a huge hassle for, for this company to demand that I change along with them because it requires that I change hosting companies. I've had the same hosting company supporting the show for the entire length of the show, 13, almost 14 years. And it's been a good relationship. I trust them. They do things in an ethical way. They are very opposed to this kind of psychographic uh, advertisement targeting and all of that and don't want to go in in that direction. So that's a company, you know, a small company that I would like to continue to do business with. So, you know, as I said, it's it's not just this style of advertising is not something I would like to do. But it's also part of a corporate consolidation this company has been, uh, the, the advertising company, has been gobbled up by a series of larger and larger companies over just the past couple of years, and so they want to gobble up the podcasters too, and not just be an advertising partner, but a hosting partner. They want to do the hosting and advertising at the same time. They want me to screw over the company that I've been working with for years. They want me to do psychographic spying on my listeners and to top top it all off. This is, as far as I can tell, illegal in large parts of the world and uh, a growing number of areas in the world. Uh, You may have remembered GDPR that protects European Internet users and the reason why those uh, opt-in cookie tracking uh, things ended up on everyone's website. That applies to podcasts, too. So advertisers always want to move in the direction of more information and more targeting but the Internet at large and governments are moving in the other direction. They're moving in the direction of more protections for people. So, for all the reasons, I don't want to go along with this. So, here's what we're doing. Uh, I'm throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks. So, if, if uh, you know following along with this plan is plan B, plan A is we simply need more paying patrons— Patrons are the number one security against, well, uh, sort of against everything. (laughs) The the ultimate security of the show is to have the listeners supporting it directly. It couldn't be more simple than that, but uh, specifically against the whims of advertising companies. If advertising companies want us to do something we don't want to do, if we can afford to say no, then we will. If we can't afford to say no, that puts us in a really dangerous position. So currently, we have about 545 patrons on Patreon pledging an average of around $6 monthly, which is the cost of full membership where you get the ad free shows and all of our bonus content. The way the math works out is I need to set a target of 1,000 patrons to be pledging by uh, by the basically when the Christmas holiday starts. So about two months. This means that every single patron counts. You know, if you can afford two bucks a month but not more than that, that's perfectly fine because someone else who can afford 10 bucks a month can come along and help maintain that average. So we need a thousand patrons pledging an average of you know the, the same as we have now, the $6 a month. That's not all, though. In the meantime, I will be working on finding a new workable system for advertising. We just don't have time to try out these plans one at a time to see if they work, and then if they don't, try the other one. We have to do them together right now, or we're going to hit a fiscal cliff. So I know this is a big ask. Uh this is the biggest predicament I have found myself in since the show became full-time work almost exactly 10 years ago. Back then, I was in the same situation throwing everything at the wall. What could I get to stick? How could I uh make money with this thing? And you know, it felt like jumping out of a plane and assembling my parachute on the way down. I have been in these kinds of situations before, not even always financial. Sometimes just I needed help from listeners in other ways, you know, volunteer work, that sort of thing. And time after time, I have turned to the audience for help, and not once in 14 years have you guys let me down. So I know this is a big ask, but I fully believe we can reach the goal of 1,000 patrons by Christmas, and I think that the show's going to come out on the other side even stronger because of it. I'm no longer worried that ad revenue will dry up and really put the show in danger because there will be enough patrons there to carry us through. So that is the ask. That is the news. Uh, I, I wish it was happier news. But uh, again, to sign up, if you want to help support us, especially in this particular time... Uh, The address is patreon.com slash bestofleft. That link is in the show notes for you to find. And, of course, I'll be talking about this going forward. If you have thoughts on this or anything else, I would love to hear your comments. The number to dial, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening, and thanks especially to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size on Patreon As I always say, that really is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode